Hello and welcome to the Price of Football, the pod that looks at the money behind the beautiful game. Uh, although I didn't see anything remotely beautiful at Leicester yesterday, I am Kevin Day and over there in Sussex, Brighton fan looking like the cat who got the cream and an extra slice of Marmite bread to dunk in it is football finance expert Kieran Maguire. Uh, now Kieran, hello. Um, first of all, I'm slightly nervous because Guy, the producer, has left us to this, so there's, there's only a 50-50 chance it actually gets recorded on some kind of tape. But also, according to your tweets, at 5am this morning, the Baroness was feeding you delicacies and sweetmeats as you sat on the bed like some sultan of the spreadsheet, by the sound of it. Uh, well, yeah, I, I had to get up early to try to get to the bottom of the, the Wigan story, and I'm still not there. <laughs> uh, but she had cooked overnight uh, cheese and marmite sharing bread, which, if you've not tasted, <laughs> is... Honestly, is from the heavens itself. It's it's the it's the phrase sharing bread. I never, whenever I see that on Saturday Kitchen, they go sharing bread. Oh, I, I like the keeping it to yourself bread, frankly. Um, <laughs> now it is question. What a lovely wife you've got that she gets up with you overnight to cook cheese and marmite bread. Um, although she's possibly happier with you being downstairs with the spreadsheets, isn't she? She's, she gets a proper <laughs> night's sleep. Um, now, as you said, it, it is questions day, but there are some new stories we need to deal with. And you've mentioned the biggest one, Kieran. The Wigan story had only just broken when we, we last recorded. Uh, and rumours have been flying ever since, I think it's fair to say, including public speculation of a massive bet by a Philippine gambling syndicate on Wigan getting relegated. Now, I don't want to join in the gossip for once, but on behalf of angry and bemused Wigan fans, I think it's fair to say that even on your first day at Reading Between the Lines School, even the administrators think something is going on here. This is a very strange story. And as you say, I don't think we're anywhere near the bottom of it yet. No, uh, the, the more you look at it, there's always more questions than answers. Mm. So if we just look at it from a, from a normal point of view uh, and just try to treat Wigan as a normal business, how could you buy a business for £16 million, run it for 18 months at a huge loss, and then sell it at a profit in the middle of a pandemic and get paid back £24 million worth of loans that you put into it. Mm. It, it makes no sense whatsoever. Um, and the sort of the pass the parcel approach, we've got this company called IEC uh, owned by or controlled by a guy called Choi Stanley. He then, we originally looked at this story about three or four weeks ago, and we thought, oh, he's just mm. transferred it to another company yeah. that he owns himself. Yeah. He then passed this company off uh, next leader fund to a guy called Al Chung, and that went through, according to the company's house uh, documentation, on the 24th of June, uh, and a week later, on the 1st of, uh, 1st of July, Al Chung puts the club into administration, which in theory triggers an automatic 12 points penalty at some point in time. Um, and this is where the, all the stories started to circulate. We, we are aware that Troy Stanley uh, is big into casinos. He's mm. a professional poker player. So, of yeah. course, that got alarm bells ringing. Um, somebody went and sort of semi-doorstepped Rick Parrier. Um, I keep him call, nearly called him Rick Astley there. Um <laughs> Uh, doorstep to who was an upset Wigan fan, so Rick, uh, it's somewhere in Cheshire. Mm. And, and Rick Parry sort of said, "Oh yeah, one of the rumours is that uh, there's a big bet, as, as you mentioned earlier, yeah. in respect to uh, taking place in the Philippines on Wigan to go down." So 
if this tr- does trigger a 12-point penalty and Wigan go down, this bet will not have been placed with the big four over here in the UK. So no, yeah, it, it won't be with Paddy Power or, or no, William Miller, any that, that lot. It will be on the Asian betting syndicates, where I think it's fair to say that, that regulation is, is a bit more relaxed than what we see over here. Um, and that's... That's one of the that's one of the claims. Um, the what also is very strange is that this company IEC uh, it appears to have put the money it's got from the sale of uh, Wigan Athletic into a, a new Philippines or Macau based casino. And IEC's share price has tripled over the course of June, um, mm. just after the deal went through. So that th- there's lots of fingers. Um, the uh, I, th- I think our, our number one sports QC in the country, Nick DeMarco, he went on Twitter yesterday and, and he says, surely the FA, if the EFL aren't willing to do so, should be investigating. And he, he was sort of intimating that the club and potentially the players might have a right to some sort of form of investigation. Mm. And then back in Manchester, Andy Burnham, who's the mayor of Manchester, Lisa Nandy, who's one of the local MPs in Wigan, they're saying, well, this... This this smells like a rat, uh, and his name's not Roland. So you know clearly it's not. Uh, it, it, it it's it's very very messy. Um, by all accounts, the players haven't been paid either yeah. for June, and they they accepted a wage deferral for three months before all this went through. So not only did they get their fail to get their June wages, it looks as if they won't have received a portion of their mm. their April and May wages as well. Yeah, there's there's a couple of things out of that. I mean, the all, all the rumours flying around seem to have the word casino in it. But the 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 betting on Wigan being relegated one seems to me the least likely somewhere because you think even the FA would see see through that, or, or the EFL, or somebody would think would, that that's a really extreme way of making sure Wigan get relegated to sell them to somebody who's going to put them into administration. So that that doesn't seem weird. But there's obviously something going on because also your historical research indicates, as as you said two or three weeks ago when we first mentioned it, this goes back a while. This goes back a year to when you say the IEC shares suddenly were worth far more than they were. And so it's been on your sort of amber list for quite some time, hasn't it? But without fully knowing why, because you and I have spoken off, off the air about things that we, we you know, we, I wouldn't have mentioned the, the Philippine bet thing if Rick Perry hadn't mentioned because there are things that you don't speculate about for legal reasons. But this, without fully knowing why, this has been ringing alarm bells for you for quite some time, hasn't it? Well, it, it has, but never it never looked that bad because right. IEC appeared to be lending the money interest-free, which is good compared to some of the schmucks in football. Um, they... I get the gut reaction was that they thought that they could do with Wigan, with what in, in a, uh, to a similar uh, to a similar degree with what happened with Fosens and uh, and Wolverhampton Wanderers. Yeah. Fosens, a Chinese company, they bought uh, they bought Wolves for around about thirty million. Clearly, Wolves are now in uh, in the Premier League in the top half of the Premier League. They could sell they could sell Wolves for ten times the amount. So given that Choi Stanley is by nature a gambler, perhaps he thought, I can do the same with Wigan. 12 months later, he realised, actually, I've, ta- I've bitten off more than I can chew. Mm. I'm, I need to find some form of sucker who will take this club off my hands. But I can't believe that there is a sucker who would pay that price and, and immediately pay back all the loans. So it just just makes no sense. But I mean, 
the thing is, there are gamblers and there are gamblers. I mean, technically, the owner of your club, Brighton, is is a gambler, but he's also a sensible businessman. But also, the loans you mentioned, the, one of those loans initially was a, a an exorbitant rate of interest when we're used to football loans being at no interest at all. And also, one of the names that's been mentioned in this process may not even have existed, it turns out now. Well, yes. I mean, this, this guy, Al Young... Um, if you do a, a Google search, and I can assure you, if, if you if you go to Google hotspots in Wigan, Al Young is the most Googled uh, name uh, you know, in, in that Lancashire town at present. Um, there's one photograph of him from about four years ago when when apparently he was he was on somebody's naughty step, um, and that's about as far as it goes. So. There is now a, a, a conspiracy theory, and, and yeah, we don't know whether it's tinfoil hat brigade mm. or whether there's something genuine with regards to it. Is there? Is this? Is this Al Young, who nobody's ever seen, nobody's actually spoken to on a face-to-face basis? The only conversations people have had were on, on a telephone. So clearly, that could have been anybody. Mm. Um, is this some form of phantom individual? which has simply allowed IEC to divest Wigan Athletic and set up some form of shell company to get rid of the problem. Yeah, and it it is quite clear, as we alluded to, that everything the administrators say indicates that they don't seem to think this is a straightforward administration. They seem surprised to be there in the first place. And they every second comment they say is, historically, this has been a well-run club. It's nothing to do with COVID. So clearly they're, they're, they're either dropping heavy hints or they're as baffled as everybody else. Yeah, and by all, by all accounts, all of the other directors at Wigan, they weren't expecting this either. And I think the the majority of the directors um, voted against it. But you know, that, that ultimately they have to do what the, the majority shareholder wants, and and that was this guy Al Young. Yeah, and you, I mean, you have some level of of uh, being the person who administrates in situations like this, albeit on a Blackpool nightclub sex shop level. But do. Would the administrators be warned about this beforehand? Would people say, look, a couple of weeks' time we've got this issue coming up, it might be worth you being on standby? Or does it suddenly happen where a club says, right, we have to go into administration, who are the most likely people to to help us? How do you choose administrators? Or do the EFL nominate administrators for you? No, um, I think the administrators said that they, they had been given a heads up, I think by a corporate lawyer, uh, a, a few days before it happened. Uh, the EFL won't have been involved in terms of that, or in terms of the decision. It will have been made by by the club itself. Mm. Um, so, you know, Begbies are have a lot of experience in in running clubs that have gone into administration historically. So you can see why why they were involved. I mean, Gerald Krasner, who is the, the partner involved, he's he's been involved at Leeds and other clubs mm. um, on a, on an executive level. So the, the administrators are above board. They've they've got experience of this type of thing. Um, what they will be trying to do is to get to the bottom of this. But I know from my own experience, when when I when I was actually uh, I, I was appointed uh, on on a uh, on a nightclub somewhere in the northwest, uh, it, it turns out that yep. the money advanced by the brewery had subsequently disappeared into the the bank account of the the boyfriend of the licensee. Um, and he was uh, he was involved with uh, organised crime. So yeah, it, it all gets very very murky, uh, and and you find yourself being sort of turned into sort of a, a mini Columbo trying to get to the bottom of this. Yeah, you really need to write your autobiography. You know that, Kieran, don't you? Um, 
does it ever get so bad that an administrator would walk away from a, a, a nightclub in the Northwest or from a football club and say, I'm sorry, we can't get to the bottom of this. This, I don't think we can help this club any further. Or does the administrator have a duty? Once they've signed a contract, is it then their duty to either make sure there's a seller for the club or that the club, God forbid, goes into liquidation and, then, and they have to manage that? Well, what the administrator will do is that they'll look at the bank balance that they inherit. Um, they'll they'll try to sell off some assets quickly. So immediately, of course, there'll be some predator clubs hanging around Wigan. They've got some good youngsters yeah. there who they could potentially. I mean, you you probably experienced this at Palace. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're yeah. not going to get market value for yeah. players under those circumstances. And everybody knows the administrator isn't going to be in there in you know in 12 months time god forbid you know they're looking to get the best price they can as quickly as possible but uh, but begbies have said they believe that there's a one in four chance that Wigan won't be able to fulfill fixtures this season because they've only got a limited amount of cash uh, to play with mm. and, and that's you know that's running out you know from day one yeah, which is all very sad because, of course, you have a problem like we did at Palace. If you have players that are on appearance fees, then they're not going to get picked for a start off because the administrator will say we can't afford it. So it's um, none of it's particularly good news for Wigan, but it is something that we will keep an eye on. Obviously, um, there's another story that we've talked about on and off for a while, which is um, the involvement of gambling companies in, in football. And the House of Lords Select Committee this week have recommended that Premier League clubs should not be allowed to have betting firms as a shirt sponsor. Is this the first step to that happening, do you think? Um, it's certainly putting a lot of pressure on this. This is a cross-party report, so you know it is sort of you've got universal universal support. Um, as far as the Premier League is concerned, I think I think it was 192 pages. I didn't manage to wade through all of them because what? of Wigan. Oh, of course, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't slacking. I'm surprised you didn't subcontract it to somebody. Surely you've got a minion out there who would have read it for you. Um, but as far as the Premier League is concerned, half the clubs there have got uh, front of shirt sponsors involved with gambling. Yeah. Uh, and this report says that this should be sorted as soon as possible um, and give the championship until 2023 to uh, to divest, uh, you know, to allow clubs to, to find alternative sponsors. Um, because in the, in the championship, it's around about two thirds of clubs. Now the EFL has come back and said, "Well, you know the you know, the EFL, which is of course the the Sky Bet Championship, yes, of course, uh, has said, oh, well, the benefits of gambling, uh, gambling sponsorship outweigh the costs. It brings in forty million pounds. Uh, clearly, during the, uh, the the pandemic, this is this is, is this is bad timing, um, and and he's trying to infer that the the work done by the gambling companies in identifying." And dealing with problem gamblers mm. um, as a result of sponsorship actually is is to the benefit of society as a whole. Um, this appears to be um, at odds with the with the House of Lords report, which, which suggests that, uh, that there are two million problem gamblers mm. uh, here in the UK. I mean, I, I, I don't gamble myself, so mm. I, I can't really comment. It, it does seem high to me. Um, but if you take a look at the income of the the big four gamblers, and that's that's Bet365, William Hill, GVC, who own Labrooks and Corals, and Flutter, who own the likes of Paddy Power. Mm. Uh, you know, between them, they, they generated around about £9 billion last year. Yeah, that's twice the size of the Premier League yeah. uh, in terms of profits alone. So, you know, we, they are big organisations. Um, 
they 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 have a, a voluntary code, something called a whistle to whistle ban. But you know, I've I've been watching the football today. I'm presuming the same as you, and you don't notice that there's not adverts for the the gambling companies at halftime, mainly because pre-match and post-match that they carpet bomb um, in terms of the different yeah. gambling companies. So, uh, you know, is is this uh, is this voluntary code a bit of tokenism? Um, again, the, the House of Lords report uh, appears to indicate that uh, they seem to think it is little benefit. I mean, we we have taken a position ourselves on the pad- podcast, and, and I know this this uh, you know sort of gr- is a, is a bit frustrating. We, we've turned down sponsorship opportunities from gambling companies we simply have. because we feel uncomfortable. We wouldn't be able to run stories of this nature, um, and uh, yeah, we, we're not Puritans by any ch- form of. By any by any scope of any imagination, mm. given the tales of daring do that we both had, um, but uh, it, it is a genuine concern uh, at present for for the football industry. You know, are we in a similar position to to what we saw with with alcohol and uh, tobacco? If you go know, going back to the seventies and you know the Benson and Hedges Cup in yeah. cricket and things yeah. like that. Well, well, there's two things. Because I I I don't mind a bet. I like I love horse racing, but yeah, I, I'm. Last of the big spenders, ten quid is my maximum bet per week, basically, and I've never ever succumbed to the temptation of having a betting site because my problem with a lot of the gambling companies is they make it so easy to bet. That's that's the thing, and I know that if I if I was you know if I had whatever betting company on my phone, I wouldn't be able to resist the temptation at half time if they're always doing again next goal score or final score, and you go, oh, I'll just put a fiver on that. Um, but the, the the big problem, of course, for football is there aren't any companies out there who can match. The level of, of sponsorship that these betting companies can are they essentially? I mean, no one, football will lose out. I mean, in the final analysis, I think it's wrong. It's right that they probably should, in the end, in the way that they shouldn't be spon- uh, sponsored by drink or tobacco companies. And I know it's legal, as some people point out. Well, it's legal, so why not? But in the end, I don't think they should be sponsored by gambling companies. But how? That's a lot of lost income to replace from other sponsors, isn't it? It is, um, and it will take time. So I, th- I, th- I think that's part of the reason why the House of Lords committee have said, well, we'll give the EFL three years uh, yeah. in an ideal world. Whereas in, as far as the Premier League is concerned, the Premier League's got enough money coming in from broadcasting and other sources to, to effectively have it on an immediate basis. Yeah. Or at the very worst, if you've got a, a, an existing uh, sponsorship deal, then, then you wait until that uh, expires. Uh, we, we have seen Everton this year. Um, terminate their arrangement with Sport Pacer, um, and they've uh, they've replaced it. I think it's with a company called Kazoo, which mm. is a, which is a motoring company. Um, and, and by all means, the, the the sums of money involved are broadly similar. So there's not been a major cut. Okay. Um, so you know, perhaps, perhaps cl- clubs in the EFL just have to be a bit smarter. Um, you know, if if they want their their sports to have any form of you know, sort of moral high grounds, mm. then that might actually attract additional sponsors as well. Um, and and the you might get you know three or four minor sponsors who together will will more than make up for the loss of income from the gambling sponsors. Well, also I think there would be some kind of income clawback as well as I've always argued, and I've argued this with Steve Parrish that if if the shirts had no sponsors on whatsoever, every single fan would buy one. I would. I mean, the reason I don't, yeah, you know, I only buy replica shirts from the old days is because I don't want to walk around with a, a, a part porn site, part website, part gambling site on my, in the front of my shirt. I think there's a lot of fans who feel the same way. But um, this is for another day because we do have more news to get through before some really rather good questions. Uh, sad news for fans of Oswestry Town this weekend. 
Um, yeah, they they announced uh, in in the last forty eight hours yeah. that uh, you know, as as a result of COVID, um, they're going to have to cease existence. Mm. And uh, yeah, I think this is the thin end thin end of the wedge. Okay, that they're only they're only in the northwest counties, mm. but uh, even so, they they got a ground capacity of two thousand. Yeah. They certainly had ambitions to to go through the. Uh, you know the tiers of football with with an, you know an ultimate ambition of getting into the, the EFL, uh, and I do think uh, what what we are seeing is very much the start of uh, of a process which will be continued, and you know non league football and I think women's football will have been the biggest victims mm. of, of COVID uh, in terms of growth and development. Yeah, and it's a shame as well because not so much. I mean, Oswestry, I imagine their closest team is Shrewsbury. That you know, when they, when there isn't an area that isn't probably twenty or thirty miles away from the Premier League team that could help these clubs out, but uh, our, our uh, yeah, obviously our disappointment and our um, regret goes out to Oswestry fans and our sympathy. Um, Arsenal have been fined by FIFA for secret sell-on clauses. Now, to me, this whole story seemed to be secret. I had no idea about this, and I've been listening to you for a, a year. Where's this coming from? Um, well, I, I, as you know, uh, I, I trawl the internet 24 hours a day, <laughs> and, and this actually came up on my football trawl. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, th- this is a weird one. Uh, Arsenal had unusual sell-on clauses um, in respect of uh, Joel Campbell and uh, Chuba Akpom. Mm. Um, they've sold those players. I think uh, Akpom is currently playing for PAOK. In uh, in Greece, mm. and his sell-on clause is that if uh, POK sell him to a UK club, Arsenal get forty percent of the profits. But anywhere else in the world, it's thirty percent. So the argument put forward by FIFA is that um, Arsenal are trying to prevent competition because ah, uh, Akpom okay. potentially could have ended up in another Premier League club. And this would act as a disincentive to the selling club. Now, I've got to uh, declare a vested interest here. Uh, Akpom came on loan to Brighton mm. about four years ago. And, and I think he's been universally voted the worst player ever to appear at the Amex Stadium. And, and we've had you know, quite a few stinkers there. So I, I, don't, I, don't think, uh, I don't think there was much chance of him returning to the, the, the uh, Premier League. But, but even so, um, FIFA's view is that if you do have sell-on clauses, they have to be neutral. Um, and, and they shouldn't be trying to incentivise uh, sales elsewhere. Now, I, I anticipate Arsenal are going to appeal. The, the amount involved, it's it's 40,000 Swiss francs, which is about 34 grand. So, yeah, it, it's not it's not significant from Arsenal's point of view. But I, I think in terms of reputation, you know, they, they try to project themselves as a club with a degree of integrity um, and therefore they're going to uh, they're going to try to defend their position. Uh, if Akpon is as bad as you say he was, this is purely a hypothetical question, but what happens to sell-on clauses if in the unlikely event that a player is sold back to the first club? So if he went back to Arsenal, what happens then? Um... Uh-huh. Well, I've waited a year. I've waited nearly a year for this, Kieran. <laughs> Arsenal get thirty. Well, they they would simply say that thirty percent of the transfer fee goes back to them. So they'll just agree a fee of seventy percent of what Pierre okay, were originally asking for. Yeah. Okay. Now, unfortunately, as well, if Guy was doing it this week, uh, 
he'd be able to edit that out. That it's going to have to go out. That um, I'm afraid. Sorry about that. <laughs> let's, let's just hope that Swiss Ramble isn't listening as usual. Um, oh. And the final news story, uh, and this is not unexpected. And unfortunately, I mentioned last week that Sunderland were a name really far from our lips. And once again, Macclesfield are the gift that keeps on giving. If you like really horrible gifts, because the EFL is appealing the punishment given to Macclesfield last month, aren't they? Um, yes, and, and I think we suspected that either Stevenage or the EFL yeah. would be appealing this. Um, Macclesfield have had 13 points of deductions for a series of misdemeanours over the course of this season. Um, and as a result of that, they've ended up one point above Stevenage. Mm. Um, they, they were given a two-point deduction, I think, at the most recent uh, independent hearing, which was held on the 19th of June. Um, and then they thought, well, the, the matter's been dealt with. They, they now have to go and apply to a business plan. And then it came out on Friday uh, on the Macclesfield website that the EFL are going to appeal this. Uh, Macclesfield's comments that they are shocked and not just disappointed, but profoundly disappointed oh, the worst uh, sort by of, this. Yeah, that's the worst sort of disappointment, as we know. Exactly. Mm. Yes, it's, it's like like when I was used to fail my exams and have to go and explain it to my mum. Um <laughs> Um, but I think this this actually is is a is a bigger issue. How long is this appeal going to take place before mm. we get ratification? Because both Macclesfield and Stevenage will be planning for mm. next season as we speak. So, you know, in terms of budgets, can we afford to keep on with the current manager? Yeah. Can we do this? Can we do that? Um, so we're now in July. Um, all of the other clubs in the lower two leagues know exactly where they stand. Macclesfield and Stevenage don't. Uh, Barrow just about do. And we, we, we've got the issues, of course, which we discussed recently with, with the National League playoffs, which mm. you can end up winning at Wembley and, in yeah. front of nobody yeah. and not get promoted on the back of it. Yeah, if, um, we, we need to move on to questions, but you, you really get the impression that the AFL want Macclesfield out of the league, don't they? It would, it would be a huge weight off their shoulders, I'm guessing, if Macclesfield weren't in there. It's, um, I, I, again, it's the same as Wigan. It's, it's the Macclesfield fans your heart goes out to. Now, our first question, Kieran, we do have some good questions this week. One in particular will, will certainly appeal to you. The first question comes from Peter Gobby. Uh, and Peter says he's a Leeds United fan of 50-plus years. Now, I don't, mean, I don't know if that means he's a 50-year-old Leeds fan or he's been a Leeds fan for 50-plus years. But uh, either way, he's old enough for them Uh, for us to refer to them as Dirty Leeds. So Peter Gobby's been a Dirty Leeds fan for 50-plus years. Uh, Peter is nervously awaiting the conclusion of the season. Um, uh, I can't wait to see the back of it, frankly, but Peter's nervously awaiting the conclusion of the season. And he says, it's an interesting if Leeds get promoted and Bielsa stays, do you think Leeds would be in a better position than other clubs in the Premier League if the 2021 season is, God forbid, 100% behind closed doors. Now, I'm not sure what difference Bielsa staying would make, but it's a good question, I think. How would they, how would Leeds, compared to other clubs, be placed if we are playing behind closed doors for another season? Well, to a certain extent, there's probably never been a better time to be promoted or a worse time to be relegated oh, wow. in respect of the, of the Premier League, because um, whilst Leeds will miss out on matchday income, um, yeah, we, we've already mentioned uh, shirts. Well, Leeds have got a new a shirt manufacturing deal coming through, um, regardless of whether or not matches are taking place in at Ellen Road. I'm pretty certain that every Leeds fan in the country will be buying the shirt yeah, because you know, they are, you know, they are incredibly passionate fans. So uh, Leeds's commercial income in the Championship um, was greater than that of nine clubs in the Premier League. 
and they don't have the benefit of hosting. Uh, you know, they're not hosting Manchester United and Liverpool and Chelsea and, and Arsenal and so on. Um, so you know, clearly they they have the opportunity to um, leverage on, on going into the Premier League. So I think they could certainly get more match, uh, more commercial income than most clubs. Their TV income would be based on performances. Um, but they do have another benefit in in the sense that you know, normally when a club goes up into the Premier League. Um, everybody's aware of it and will try to take it to the cleaners when mm. it comes to player sales and player purchases um, because, oh, you're getting this extra money. Well, it Leeds is going into a buyer's market. Um, so therefore, you know, clearly Bielsa uh, will have identified the players he wants. Um, and if perhaps he was looking to get four players for, for £100 million, he can probably now get six Six or so. I think they will be in a very strong position. Um, they'll be able to get rid of the players who are out of contract, uh, who they who they no longer want. Um, some of the existing squad will have step ups uh, as a result of being promoted, but they won't necessarily then be able to get a new contract on top of the the step up in their existing contract. So yeah, I, I do think that they are in a strong position. Um, yeah, they're it's a horrible word. They're a very good brand from a yeah. footballing perspective. Um, and therefore that this could give them an advantage. I wouldn't say against all of the clubs in the Premier League because yeah, that the gap between the big six and the rest is is uh, an ever-increasing chasm, but I, I think they would be in a very solid position from a financial perspective. Yeah, this is not a question for you, Kieran. It's more of a statement, really, from somebody whose life is circled pretty much by football, the theatre and comedy. I find it astonishing that the government are able to predict a few weeks ago with 100% confidence that we're absolutely safe to go into pubs and cinemas and restaurants and hairdressers, but are yet to give football or the theatre any indication whatsoever of when we might be able to go and get people inside the grounds of the theatres. And it's increasingly driving me up the... Uh, I would swear, but it's um, it's annoying me, let's put it that way. Uh, next question is from James Newman. It's another uh, interesting question, and it is... Uh, it is COVID-related, I suppose. But it, so James says the, the third tier of, Ge- of German football has resumed. Uh, basically, how so when League One in England had to be cancelled? Is the infrastructure in Germany and the finances in Germany of their clubs so much better or different that they're able to start and we, we weren't? Well, I think if we take a look at uh, Liga 3 in the Bundesliga, um, yeah, that, that actually re- recommenced on the, uh, on the 29th of May. Um, but but you've, it's, it's an interesting league in the sense that you've got some some pre- pretty big clubs there. Um, Bayern Munich's B team is is currently top of the league, but they can't get promoted into Bundesliga two. Um, I, I think this is actually more to do with the the fact that that uh, that Germany has dealt with the coronavirus um, better than most club most countries in Europe, um, and therefore it is further down the line than many other countries. And it's not just uh, Liga 3 that's returned, but also the Frauen Bundesliga, the, the women's football in, in Germany, um, that's returned and that's been playing for a month as well. So they'll be able to complete their season. You know, and I've already said today, I think that women's football will be yeah. disproportionately bad here um, in, in the UK um, as a result of uh, coronavirus. So um, I think this is actually because G- Germany got into lockdown quicker, got its sums right. And this isn't a part of political comment by me. As you know, I've got no no particular axe to grind. Uh, mine is purely on a... I, I judge people on what's referred to as a competence threshold. Mm. Um, and um, I think yeah, the, the UK has done poor uh, in, in respect of its treatment of COVID-19. And, and that is why 
lower league football clubs, as you say, the theatre, cinemas. You know, there are many institutions which which will be suffering uh, for an elongated period of time as a result of this. Yeah, I think I should point out on your behalf, Kieran, that you're too professional to grind your axes on air, uh, off air. You and I share many an axe that we grind. <laughs> and it's just that we don't want to alienate some of the listeners who don't feel quite the same way. Uh, Tom McCormick has a good question. Uh, Tom uh, makes the assumption that next season will follow quite quickly on the end of this one. I think that's a, a fair assumption, Tom. Although, again, it goes back to what we just said. No one seems to know when it will start. But if the if the gap is very short, how big an effect will this have on clubs' finances in terms of pre-season? Because the big clubs will miss out on their usual money-spending summer tours and smaller clubs will miss out on, on big money friendlies against you know, the Premier League teams down the road. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's no chance of, of any of the clubs, I think, doing uh, major major pre-seasons. If you, if you take a look at Manchester United's accounts, they made £11.3 from um, hosting fees, you know, effectively, they, they, a promoter will come to them and say to United, "Well, you know, I'd like you to go and play against my team, Adelaide Rovers, um, in uh, probably Adelaide." Um, and, and you know, United will say, "Well, it's going to cost you one and a half million pounds, two million pounds, whatever it is." So, so United are, you know, they they and Real Madrid and Barcelona are, are the kings of this. Um, so it's very lucrative for them, and it's and, and that eleven point three million that doesn't exclude new sponsorship deals that they're likely to be signing at around about the same time. So it it will be a hit to the the big clubs. Um, it will be a hit to the smaller clubs. I don't think it's that significant because normally if you've got uh, somebody coming from the Premier League, it tends to be a Liverpool eleven. Yeah, I was. Yeah, um, and and you look at the program, you go well. I don't. I recognise two of them, and that's only from having Panini cards. Yeah. Um, so uh, I don't think the smaller clubs get huge sums. Yeah, remember, there's no TV uh, for most of these small club fixtures, and they would probably be selling tickets at reduced prices. But we, we are in a scenario where every little helps, um, and, and clearly, you know, the fact that these matches will be taking place uh, because the, the before the start of the 2021 season. Uh, English English Premier League clubs will be looking for pre-season friendlies. They'll be taking place behind closed doors, so it will be it will be a frustration for all parties. You know, it's interesting, Kieran. I, I write my script out in block capitals because even I have trouble reading my own writing. Sometimes uh, I like to think it's because I'm creative, uh, but then I put sometimes I put little subsidiary questions in my normal writing, and you've answered both of them in a kind of we've been married too long way. I didn't even have to ask <laughs> you the question because um, the big clubs. I can't. I knew that the people bid sort of for the big clubs to go on tour there and you know somebody will say let's have a tournament in Hong Kong and and get four clubs out there but I did often wonder how a club say like Whiteley for example local down the road for me how they make money from playing a pre-season friendly game against Palace Reserves even assuming that a thousand Palace fans turn up and pay a fiver to get in given the amount of money that that game would put on to cost Whiteley for probably only walking away with a, with a, th- a thousand quid which again is a lot of money but it's it's a it's quite an expensive way of getting that money isn't it? Yeah, very much so. But I think the the club also gets the pride. You know, if if yeah, you're one of the players for, for White Leaf, you say, "Well, I've played against Palace." Yeah, you know, and that's you know, and and, and Annie Park footballer or or your you know amateur footballer wants that on their CV just to say, you know, "I've I've played." Uh, you know, X minutes against such and such a player. Yeah, and also, I always feel that, um, and I think Palace are one of the clubs that know this. I, 
I would, yeah, I would much rather play a, a friendly against the local non-league. I'd rather go and see Palace play at Carshall and or Sutton or Croydon than yeah, you know, Villa or Walsall. It makes it makes far more sense. And also because I think each club should be sort of at the, the head of a Christmas tree, if you like, amongst the you know Palace should be the big dog in the Surrey and Kent clubs and and so on and so forth. And the, and those clubs should be looking to a club like Palace to help them out in times of difficulty. Um, now you mentioned Man United's finances here, Kieran, and we have a question that I. I I almost had to sort of wipe a bead of sweat from my eyes. I'm almost reluctant to ask it because I didn't think a Man United fan would ever ask us this question, Kieran. It's, it's a question from Paul Glover. And Paul starts by saying, rather bafflingly, uh, I know you've done a separate podcast on the Glazer ownership of Man United. Uh, have we, Kieran? Or have you just been playing away again, as usual? No, no, no I think we, we have mentioned it in the past. Oh, we've mentioned it, but we didn't do a whole separate... I mean, I know... I we, we, no, we didn't do, a, didn't, 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 do a, didn't do a single one. I, ha, I have appeared as a guest on a few United podcasts, yes. Yes, of course you have. I hate okay. to say this. Right, it, but, it's... But, it's it's not being unfaithful, Kevin. Honest. Yeah. Well, all right. Let's let's put that aside. But the, Paul's question is this: um, uh, Paul Glover says, with the current climate uh, and the recent release of figures relating to the net debt at Manchester United and dividends, Paul is wondering something. He says that his fellow United fans would consider sacrilege, and that is, have the Glazers perhaps brought more to the club than they've taken out? Now. Yeah, I don't know what Paul looks like, and luckily, I think a lot of Man United fans don't, because it is a little bit like walking into a newly opened pub in Newcastle, wearing an "I love Mike Ashley" shirt. But is there is there something in Paul's point that that perhaps you, the Glazers aren't just as you've described them before, just there to take money out of the club, but are actually putting stuff in? Um, well, they've not put any finance in. I think what it could be argued is that they have brought to the table. Um, a bit of uh, NFL-style savvy. Uh, mm. Man- Manchester United's commercial arm, um, yeah, and, and people snigger about it because they've got their official you know, snack partner in Malaysia and so on. It did introduce uh, a, a, a new style of generating relationships with commercial partners and sponsors, and, and that means that Manchester United are the biggest players in town um, on that particular income field. So it could be argued that that money has come in, um, certainly, as far as wages are concerned, you know that they don't appear to have uh, been stingy on that. United have the biggest wages bill um, in in the Premier League, but uh, if you take a look at the squad cost, Manchester City's nine hundred and six million, Chelsea eight hundred and seventy, United's is eight hundred and eleven, so it's not that far mm. behind. And remember, they, they've got the likes of you know Marcus Rashford and uh, and, and Co who have come through the youth mm. ranks. Um, so yeah, that that's saving them um, a, a lot of money uh, as well. So I, I don't think they're necessarily worse off. Um, I, I would say that where they lost out was in, in the early years of their tenure. They were very reliant upon Sir Alex Ferguson to do extremely well with a relatively limited budget. Mm. Um, and, and that caught up with them by the time he retired. And that's why they've not won the Premier League now for seven years. And normally you'd expect a club with the biggest wage bill to be you know, in the top two or three every year uh, to be genuinely challenging for the Premier League title. Um, and to a certain extent, Manchester United have become the new Arsenal, whereby uh, they're acting as if if they finish fourth in the Premier League. It's, a, it's an incredible achievement. Mm. And yeah, that, that appears to be inconsistent. I, I can't see Roy Keane being satisfied with fourth if he was the captain. Um, 
there's been very little spent in terms of infrastructure to the extent that I believe that uh, the likes of UEFA no longer consider Old Trafford mm. to host Champions League finals. So that's going to be costing them. Uh, it's costing them financially, but I think it also costs them in terms of reputation, yeah, because other fans will very quickly get hold of this and uh, United fans are, are, are aware of it and they're unhappy as well. Um, yeah, we, Manchester United is a very iconic, or Old Trafford is a very iconic stadium, uh, but from from experience of watching football match, it's, it's uncomfortable, it's cramped. Um, and, and it's not really, um, you know, anywhere near the likes of of Spurs um, and their new stadium. So I think they've got a lot of catching up to do. But also, as you've said many times in the past, if up to fifteen thousand people in Old Trafford are there for the first and only time in their life to take the photographs with the statue and buy as much stuff in the, the shop as possible, they probably don't really notice or care too much about the the infrastructure, do they? True, true, and, and also you know going going back to to your industry, you know some of the theatres in in the West End of London, you know they're not exactly comfortable places to sit, but but we still go there. Mm. Well, yeah, of course, I mean because a lot of them were built in between eighteen ninety and nineteen oh five, when the idea of people being bigger or disabled people actually going to the theatre was just not in anybody's mind. So yeah, a lot of them are not fit for purpose. But again, so many of the theatres in the West End are filled by people who were there for the, the first and only time in their life on a trip from America. So they don't really notice it. They think it's quaint. Now, our penultimate question yeah. is an interesting one uh, because we talk a lot about the sponsors on shirts uh, on this pub, but very rarely the shirts themselves. So Ben Mountford asks, what is the structure behind kit manufacturing deals? Do companies bid for the right to produce it? And if so, and there's so much money involved, why do so many clubs end up with a template kit every year? If clubs were to go in-house, would that make financial sense? Uh, and Ben adds a PS. Uh, he says, PS, if you could answer this question without at any point mentioning our obnoxious neighbours, Aston Villa, I'd appreciate it. Well, Ben, that was a schoolboy error there, because if, if you hadn't added that PS, I would not have dreamt of mentioning Aston Villa at all. I don't know why I would have thought about mentioning Aston Villa in this until you said don't mention Aston Villa. And I had to mention Aston Villa simply by saying don't mention Aston Villa. I might have mentioned Aston Villa because, of course, when Palace reformed in 1905, we wore a set of second-hand Villa kits. But I think this is a really interesting question because, as I say, we, we get obsessed with shirt sponsorship but never actually how the shirts get made themselves. And I know a couple of years back, Palace tried to take the design of the kit in-house not the manufacturer, but the design of the kit. They wanted to come up with their own design, and, and that led to some apparently interesting discussions with the kit manufacturer. So I think this is a, a really good question, especially as I am obsessed with football kits. Right, yeah. Um, the, the way that it works is that the club will normally put out the, the kit manufacturing contract to tender, and... They will then, you know, they'll, they'll they'll effectively, you know, tout themselves around Nike, New Balance, Adidas, Puma, and so on, and they'll see who comes up with the the, the biggest amount of money. But you have to do your sums carefully because the the deal will be a flat fee plus a commission that the club gets effectively for their intellectual property rights in terms of the badge um, on, on every piece of merchandise sold. Now, for most clubs, you know, they'll agree. X hundred thousand, X million a year from the manufacturer, um, and get seven percent commission is, is the standard rate. What we've seen with the Liverpool deal is that they've accepted a, a lower flat fee from Nike plus twenty percent commission. So they're hoping that Nike are going to generate an extra volume of sales. The the, the problem we've got with the the templates is that 
because the kit manufacturers have spent so much money paying for the rights to manufacture the kits, they're now in a position that in order to break even, they've got to go and produce them as cheaply as possible. Mm. And the way to do that is to set up a template in the factory, which is likely to be somewhere in Southeast Asia, mm. um, and, and literally just churn them out 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And all you're doing is you're just changing the colours of the yarns, which is a lot, a lot, uh, a lot cheaper than, than setting up um, for a complete new, uh, a, a, compl- a complete new uh, set of uh, manufacturing equipment. So, so because of the cost savings, and also from the from the manufacturer's point of view. They're also trying to promote a brand. Um, so if the Nike kit for such and such a club is going to be on a certain style, remember Nike are also selling kits to park footballers mm. because you know, every amateur team. So if you say, oh, my, my kit, that's, that's broadly based on the new Manchester United away kit, that, that might tempt uh, uh, an amateur team to buy from Nike as opposed to buying from somebody else because you know the players are saying, well, it's, it's got a vague association with a bigger club. Um, so the, the manufacturers want to, to extend their brand, and this is always very noticeable in, in the World Cup because uh, it's normally Puma, isn't it, that have yeah. the, uh, the highest number of kits uh, in the World Cup, because they, they tend to have very good links with, with the African nations especially. Um, and and you see that these are variations on a theme, and, and that becomes ingrained in you when, you when you go to perhaps buy your next piece of sports equipment, which won't necessarily be um, the kit of the club itself. Yeah, I, I presume uh, that when clubs are putting these kits out to tender, they give them... They will say to Adidas or Puma or whoever it is, these are the parameters. The first, the home kit's got to be blue and white stripes. The away kit's got to be black. You can do what you want with the goalkeeper. We don't care how stupid they look. Or, or, or are the are our Puma going to Liverpool and saying red's a bit old fashioned? They they wouldn't muck about with what you call the brand like that, would they? And the the, the second question as well is that somebody really needs. And I'm sure they they have done. As I've read various Twitter threads and and seen some short YouTube documentaries on this, but somebody needs to follow the trail of these, let's call them what they are, sweatshops where the shirts are made into the club shops of Premier League teams and and see where the the added money gets. Yeah, because, I I mean, at the least you're paying 50 quid for a Premier League replica shirt now, aren't you? And that's if it's only one of you buying it. If you're buying it for you and your family, it's an enormous amount of money for given how much each shirt is, is actually made for. Yeah, there are huge margins on on these products. Um, there's no doubt about it. I, I, I'm not I'm not defending the clubs or the the uh, manufacturers. If you, if you take a look at Adidas and Manchester United, Adidas are com- committed to paying United seventy five million pounds a year. Yeah. That's that's before the first first shirt is sold. Um, so it, that means you, you you do the math. You've got to sell a hell of a lot of shirts yeah. before you break even on that deal. Yeah. Um, and and that's why they tend to go for. I mean, you know, a, a club like Manchester United will have a bespoke kit. Um, you know, I'm I'm fully aware. You know, where we are in the pecking order at Brighton, we'll we'll get a we'll get a bespoke home kit. The away kit is some something off the Nike shelf, and and you just accept it. Mm. Yeah, there's nothing forcing us to buy these things. That's a very good point. Now, Kieran, as a special treat, because I like you, I've I've saved. 
I've, I think this will be your favourite question. I've saved it till last because it's, it's a good old-fashioned accounting question and it's based on something you said. So it's going to feed your talent and your ego. So um, Jamie Moss has asked us our last question. Uh, Jamie said uh, that he noticed Kieran's recent tweet about the fresh charge against Bolton's land assets. Okay. Does this constitute a normal part of coming out of a messy and costly administration, or does it look more like creditors protecting themselves from COVID uncertainty? Now, you might have to walk me through this, Kieran, on a, on a, a step-by-step basis quite slowly. Rodio, um, people are still owed money um, by, by Bolton Wanderers, right. um, and they're concerned that they might not be paid. Right. So... Uh, when Bolton administration effectively some of the people in order to sign off of the deal, um, they said, right, we, we won't take our money immediately. Um, we'll give you time to repay us. This is what they said to the new owners. Mm-hmm. Having said that, you know, they are being uh, they are trying to be a little bit flexible, um, but they've got to cover their own asses. And, and one way of doing this is to have a mortgage over the properties. So this this is the uh, the lenders. I think one of the lenders is. Uh, is a company called Fildraw, which is to do with the, the late Eddie Davis's estate. Yeah. Um, yeah, they were owed a considerable sum of money. They want that money back at some point in time. And uh, by having a charge over the assets, if if the new owners, who are a company called Football Ventures Brackets Whites Limited, if they don't pay on the agreed times, then the uh, then, then the lenders can can call in the mortgage by effectively having you know, being in a position to appoint administrators or people of that nature. So this is well, two things. First of all, this is a good news for Bolton fans, uh, or potentially bad news for Bolton fans, and B. When you talk about land asset and land assets, are we talking about anything other than the stadium and the footprint of the stadium on which it stands? Well, I, th- I think there's also the hotel. Um, oh, of course, the, yes, the, yes. Yeah. So yeah. I think those. Uh, so ha- having to go into the the intricacies of individual charges is is something even I get bored of eventually. Right. Uh, but uh, it, it's it's not it's not bad news because provided Bolton uh, keep to the agreed uh, payment schedule. With the uh, with the lenders, then 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 they shouldn't be a problem. Okay. Okay. Well, um, that's the end of today's pod, everybody. It's a questions pod with some added news thrown in. Uh, we'll have more news on Thursday, possibly with some added questions thrown in. That's how flexible we are, especially when Guy the producers away. We're just freewheeling today. Uh, if you do have questions for us, and uh, as you gather by now, I hope they can be as broad or as detailed as you like. They could be specifically about your club, no matter what level they play at. And don't feel that anything you ask us is going to get ridiculed because it, it, it won't. Your level of knowledge about football finances will not be less than mine. Please, we welcome we welcome the beginners and those with their own spreadsheet. And already, Kieran, you can hear rustling his script. He's throwing that away. This pod is over for Kieran. That, that He's rustled his notes away. They've gone. The dog's come in and carried them off. There'll be a big open fire that he still keeps going during the summer. The Baroness will go, I wrote some recipes on the back of those notes. And Kieran will go, it's too late. I've written them up. The dog's thrown them in the fire. Um, questions at priceoffootball.com. Uh, we will be back with you on Thursday when I'll probably be in an even worse mood because Chelsea will have spanked us at Sellers Park by then. Um, as ever, Kieran, it's a pleasure and I'll talk to you very soon. Great. Stay safe, ladies and gentlemen. Bye, everybody.
provide some football.